0: What we have today before us is the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. We talked about that last time. He didn't know what the dream meant. None of the people around him could tell him. They said, man, only God can tell you what the dream means. We're not mind readers. And all of their lives then at risk as Nebuchadnezzar kind of goes off the deep end and decides to kill all of his wise men and astrologers and some of the best trained superstitious minds, religious minds of the day. So let's dive in. Verse 31 We learn the dream from verses 31 to 36. Daniel tells the king what his dream was. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. So up to verse 36 is sort of transitional, but 31 to 35, Daniel just lays out, here's the dream. Again, remember the purpose of the dream was so that Nebuchadnezzar would know what was in his own heart, know his own thoughts. So God knew exactly how to speak to Nebuchadnezzar in a language, in a picture. Pictures are powerful, aren't they? So in the dream, he doesn't give him a sermon in his dream, he gives him a picture. And I don't know about you, but for me, I'm not a really good abstract thinker. I'm a concrete thinker. Like I need things to be clear for me. And pictures are wonderful. So God gives Nebuchadnezzar in his dream a picture. And it's a picture of what? Did you catch the dream? It's a picture of an image, an idol, a statue. The city of Babylon, one ancient inscription reads, the city of Babylon had altogether 53 temples of chief gods, 55 chapels of Marduk, one of the chief deities, 300 chapels of earthly deities, 600 for the heavenly deities, 180 altars for the goddess Ishtar, 180 for the gods Nergal and Adad, and 12 other altars for different gods. Babylon was a city filled with idolatry and all the accompanying shrines and temples and statues. And Nebuchadnezzar was an avid builder, was a very compulsive builder and has built statues of gold, pure gold. So God knows what he's doing when he speaks to Nebuchadnezzar using a statue. Now, what's the overall impression of the statue? What's the overall impression of the dream? What are the words used? Great, it's a big statue, awe-inspiring, it's awesome. So the first impression of this idol, the statue in the dream is it is magnificent. But Nebuchadnezzar in the dream, notice what he's doing. What's Nebuchadnezzar doing in the dream? Is he building the statue? He's watching. Nebuchadnezzar in the dream is a spectator. Things are happening. So right now, nothing's happened yet as far as we're concerned. But Nebuchadnezzar is watching. and He sees this grand, splendid, awesome, giant statue. But then verse 32, we get a little more description. The image's head was of fine gold the chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So now this description of this multi-layered sort of stratified transitioning metal statue all the way up until you get down to the feet. And at the feet we see, it's a mixed media art project, but on a huge magnificent scale. And at the feet we see clay introduced, which is non-metallic. But other than that, It's all made of different kinds of metal. It's a stratified, mixed-media statue. A couple of observations as we look at the dream, the statue. As we're told about the dream, we move from top to bottom. The dream starts with the head and moves down to the feet. And the metals move from more precious or more valuable to less valuable. Think of Olympic medals. You get into the Olympics, everybody's going for the gold. That's the most valuable. And then there's the silver And then there's the bronze. So we know that in terms of preciousness, gold more valuable than silver, more valuable than bronze, more valuable than iron. So things are going down in terms of this statue. They get less valuable as you move down the statue. But at the same time, they move from softer to harder. So gold at the top is softer than silver, is softer than bronze, is softer than iron. So we're getting harder as we move down the statue. And then again, at the bottom, you have the clay introduced. And the clay, what happens when you try to mix iron and clay? Do those two things go together? Can you mix those together? It just doesn't work. And I've tried to put metal handles on clay things. And there's just no good way to attach them. The clay is just too fragile. And the metal is too hard and too stiff. And you just can't mix these things together. So that's kind of some overall thoughts about this statue. And now verse 34 introduces another aspect of the dream. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel telling him, you watched a second time. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. What an odd dream. So he sees the statue and then all of a sudden there's this stone that appears And somehow in the dream, he has the sense that it's not something that human beings were involved with. It wasn't made. It's not a different kind of statue or it's not a kind of a sculpture. But it was cut out without hands. And it strikes the image on its feet and breaks them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, literally shattered. And that's where the title of the sermon comes from. The stone caused everything else in the statue to get shattered. And that's why I called it a shattered dream and become like chaff or dust from the summer threshing floor. The chaff is the coating that just gets pulverized into like dust. And then part of the way they would winnow and thresh was you toss up the grain into the air and the heavier grain would fall right down on the threshing floor and the wind would blow away the chaff because it was so light. It's like sawdust. And the wind would just blow it away and it would disappear into the wind. And the wind carried them off so that there was no place for them was found. They disappeared. And the stone that struck the image wasn't shattered itself by striking the image. They weren't both shattered. The statue shattered. Instead, the stone becomes bigger and bigger. It grows and it becomes a great mountain and it fills the whole earth. So the dream, notice again, Nebuchadnezzar, what's he doing? He's watching. That's all he can do. You ever had one of those dreams where you're watching things happen and you want to get involved in your dream, but it feels like your legs weigh a million pounds, like you want to go, but you can't go. And I don't know if that's how Nebuchadnezzar felt or not, but I've had dreams like that. And he's watching and the statue gets pulverized. Verse 34 says it's broken in pieces. It's crushed together. Verse 35, it's gone without a trace as if it never existed. And no wonder the dream was so troubling to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is a guy who had an appreciation for the arts, appreciation for value, appreciation for building idols. This is tragic. I mean, somebody, now listen carefully, hold on to what I'm telling you for later on because we're gonna make some application. So somebody put a lot of work, we don't know who, put a lot of work into building this statue only to see it utterly pulverized as if it never even existed, blown away like chaff. That's a tragic dream, isn't it? Now, I thought it was kind of interesting, and we're going to take a little rabbit trail for a minute just to wrap our mind around some thoughts about statues. On our day right now, we're seeing a day of statues being torn down. So what's going on with statues and what they mean? And again, a little side note, but I think it'll apply to our understanding of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. New York Times article from June of this year. One woman, a professor and an art historian named Erin Thompson She spent her career studying why people destroy and how people destroy cultural art and icons and statues. She says about statues, what they are. She says, I think a statue is a bid for immortality. It's a way of solidifying an idea and making it present to other people or power, an idea or power. So that is what's really at issue here. It's not that the statues themselves are a problem, but the point of view that they represent. We have, as humans, been making monuments to glorify people and ideas since we started making art. And since we started making statues, other people have started tearing them down. There are statues from the ancient Near East of Assyrian kings that have curses carved on them that say, he who knocks down my statue, let him be in pain for the rest of his life. One generation builds a statue, has its purposes, its ideologies, its commemoration. The next generation tears it down and builds their statues. And then the next generation tears that one down, builds its statues, and so on and so forth, around we go. Throughout history, destroying an image has been felt as attacking the person represented in that image, which we know because when people attack statues, they attack the parts that would be vulnerable on a human being. We see ancient Roman statues with the eyes gouged out or the ears cut off. It's a satisfying way of attacking an idea not just by rejecting it, but by humiliating it. And why I quote that to you, what I find interesting about what we just read and talked about, this defaming, humiliating, tearing down statues, what we don't see in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is we don't see an outside force coming in, an outside group coming in to tear the statue down. We see a stone coming out of the heavens. And where does it strike? The feet So this is not an act of vengeance. This is not an act of humiliation. It's an act of destruction. And this stone enters the scene and it's responsible and it hits at the fragile foundation of the statue, not the head, but the feet. And again, we notice that the stone that's mentioned, there's been no human manipulation to it, no human intervention, no human molding of it without human hands this influence, this interference comes without the intervention of any human hands. Again, all this is leading to something. Now, verse 36, again, Daniel says, this is the dream, and now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. And I can imagine at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, he's got to be just stunned that this guy, this Jewish guy, has just told him, we're not talking some generality, well, you saw a statue. Even that would be remarkable, right? Even if he knew that Nebuchadnezzar had seen a statue in general, but so specific to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I can only imagine the farther Daniel explained, the more Nebuchadnezzar was just on the edge of his seat, his jaw, pick his jaw up off the ground because he's going, I can't believe that you just told me exactly, precisely what my dream was. And now, he says, I'm going to tell you the interpretation. One more thing before we go on. This verse got me thinking about Jesus's meeting with the woman at the well. Do you remember that story? I think it's John chapter four. And we know the story. He talks to her about her relationships, particularly her relationships, her failed relationships with men. She lies to him in a sense, is a little bit deceptive with him, but he knows. And he tells her exactly about Her life. And she's a little unnerved by that. She wants to change the subject, and he talks to her about water that she could have and never thirst again. And she becomes an evangelist. And do you know what she says to people? She says, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I don't know about you, but one of the things that keeps me coming back, you know, we all have those days where we go, You know, is God really there? Maybe I'm just deceived. Maybe it's not real. And I come back so much to the word of God, to the Bible. No one has ever explained me to me like God has explained me to me. No one's ever been able to accurately explain with such detail how human beings think or respond or what they really want, what the real true desires are. I mean, the whole gamut. You read the Bible and you go, whoever wrote this book tells me everything about humanity and it makes sense. It's logical. And it's true. You go, wow, that's exactly how it seems to work. So I come back all the time. Come, come to church. Let me tell you about a God. He'll tell you everything about yourself. Give you the answers to questions you didn't even know you had. Fascinating. That must be how Nebuchadnezzar is feeling. Verses 37 through 45 entail the interpretation. So here's what we're gonna do. When I say it's a crash course in history, Right now, we don't know what the dream means. We're going to get that now. But we do know that there's a big stone that crashes into the idol. Like I said, it's a crash course in history. I'm going to read it. Then we'll go through on a superficial level what all of this means. And we'll wrap it up with some application. Are you with me? Verse 37 says, You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, And glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, history is not my favorite subject, so we will muddle through this together. I will try to provide enough to help you to see kind of the progression. Some of this dream, most of it for Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar were in the future. Daniel will serve under Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel will last all the way into Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel will serve over the course of two empires. But then for them, these other empires are yet future. For us, we look back on most of it, but some of it for us still lies in the future. So recognize that as I get into this, I might say some things. You might have heard some other things. We need an interpretation for the interpretation sometimes, I think. So recognize that there are different ways of looking at this, Some of it is certain and uncontested other aspects of this dream, especially some of the future aspects. We're still waiting to see how it works out and how it all connects. But we'll make some general notes about the dream's meaning. So now we know the statue wasn't a vision or a dream for Nebuchadnezzar to build something new. What's represented by the statue? The giant statue represents a very careful and detailed chronology of world-dominating empires. And all of the self-aggrandization that comes along with wanting to rule the world and all of the heart and intention behind that. So the interpretation moves from the top down, starting with present-day Babylon, and moves on into the future. The metals again become less valuable over time, similar to the kingdoms become less consolidated over time. The value is more distributed. And the metals become stronger as time goes on down into the legs. So at a specific time in history, a kingdom not made of metal, not made of clay, a kingdom of stone enters onto the scene and crushes every other kingdom, pulverizes them so that as we said, no one would even know they ever existed. So we start out with verse 37 and the Babylonian kingdom. You, O king, are a king of kings. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hands and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So the gold head represents Babylonian empire, specifically typified by the one man who was at the head of the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar himself. Under Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled, I think, for about 43 years, Babylon experienced what's called the golden age of Babylon. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, as I said, loved to build. He was an avid builder. He built temples and statues and the hanging gardens and the Ishtar Gate. You can still see, I think it's in the Berlin Museum, the Ishtar Gate. This gigantic gate with blue baked bricks and images of all kinds of creatures on it. So many things, the walls thick enough for four chariots to race on top, an inner wall, and outer wall. They've dwelt in extreme security, feeling that the kingdom, the city was so impenetrable that they didn't have to worry about it. There were empires before, but Daniel starts his history. The dream starts with Nebuchadnezzar and moves forward. So it's one head. The head represents the consolidated power under Nebuchadnezzar. Here's an interesting note. Archaeologist David Downs said, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was building a city that would last for all eternity and starting a dynasty that would never die. That was what was in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And fear and worry over his kingdom and what would become of it after he dies. Who's gonna take it? How's it gonna happen? Well, the length of the Babylonian empire, less than 100 years, less than a century until it gets conquered. Today, by the way, in case you're wondering, Babylon is about 50 miles from Baghdad, I believe, in Iraq, and it lies today in a dusty ruins, just like Isaiah said in Isaiah 13. It'd be destroyed and never be rebuilt. It's been rebuilt over history, but now, in our time, it lies in ruins. Notice where Nebuchadnezzar's power comes from. This is probably a little bit jarring to Nebuchadnezzar too. Why is Nebuchadnezzar in power? how did he get there? where did it come from? Daniel says, the God of heaven is the one who gave you this autonomy, who gave you this authority, this supremacy. You didn't do it yourself. You're not a self-made man, Nebuchadnezzar. Anything you have, isn't that true for us? We think we got these great kingdoms. We think our job or our business or our family or whatever it is we think we rule over, we think, oh, look what I have accomplished. You didn't accomplish anything God didn't enable you to accomplish. Any money you have in the bank, any brains you have in your head, They're graces of God. And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that. Like so many people have to learn that. So verse 39, we move to the next kingdom, the transition from gold to silver. After you, you mean there's gonna be an after me? Yes, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. It's one thing to get conquered by someone superior to you. Usually that's the way we think of it, isn't it? We used to say to be the man, you've gotta beat the man. The strong survive, the greater kingdom conquers the lesser kingdom, but wait until we get into the chapter later on in Daniel, we'll go into more detail about exactly how Babylon gets conquered. It's absolutely astounding how they do it. Conquered by who? We know looking back, the Medes and the Persians, this alliance between Media and Persia. Ultimately, Persia conquers Media and it becomes the Persian Empire. We're talking about Iran the Iranian empire, you could say. National Geographic called the Persian empire the first world superpower. Conquered 539 BC, they conquered Babylon. And Daniel 5, again, will give us some more details. The metal used, not gold, now it's silver. And in that Persian empire, silver bars were used for currency and silver bullion was used for trade. So now silver is the dominant metal. And notice the region of the body, the head, Babylon, 100 years. Now we got a larger surface area of the body, two arms, Medes and Persians, that's representative, and a torso, so it's a greater coverage of the body, the length of the Medo-Persian Empire, more than 200 years. Less than 100 for Babylon, more than 200 for Medo-Persian Empire. Archaeologists discovered something called the Cyrus Cylinder. The one who conquered Babylon was Cyrus the Great. And the Cyrus Cylinder chronicles, he, Cyrus himself, chronicled on the cylinder his reflections on conquering Babylon and on himself. Are you ready for this? You want to bet he's a humble guy? What do you think? Probably not. This is what the inscription says. I am Cyrus, king of the universe. Evidently not married, because his wife would have fixed him on that for sure. (laughs) Great king, mighty king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the world quarters. That's what he said about himself. And yet we read as the statue continues, gold to silver, now we're to the bronze hips, the hip girdle, the thighs and the belly. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, sorry to tell you Cyrus, but you're not gonna last either, which shall rule over all the earth. Historically, we look back, we go from Babylon to Medo-Persia to what's the next kingdom, world empire? the Grecian Empire, the Persians conquered by Alexander the Great. And we get more on this in chapter eight. So I'm not going to give you a lot of details, but the Greeks connected to the Bronze Age. So bronze is the metal reflected here. The length, the amount of body coverage on the statue, about 350 years, less than 100, more than 200. Now we're at about 350 years. And the extent of the kingdom of Greece Alexander the Great is the guy responsible, the wonderful, amazing military leader. Now, the philosopher Plutarch is quoted as saying, When Alexander the Great saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. And what do you do when you feel like you're called to be a conqueror and you run out of stuff to conquer? Like that's your purpose. All of a sudden, I got no more purpose. I don't know what to conquer. He dies in Babylon. People still discuss as to what actually caused his death. Was he assassinated? Was his alcoholism, drunkenness, whatever it was. In his 13 years as king, and he died very young, by the way, I think in his 30s, he conquered over 2 million square miles and made Babylon his capital. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen, and he exported Greek language and Greek culture all over the world, To this day, one of the most famous libraries in the world found in Egypt in a city called Alexandria. So that's how far you see city names all over the world that represent and are the remnant of the Greek culture, the Greek dominance around the world. One more interesting tidbit, as Alexander the Great is making his way, conquering around the world, he shows up at nowhere else but other than Jerusalem. And as Alexander the Great shows up in Jerusalem, he comes into the temple area. The priests come out with the scroll of Daniel and they show it to him. And they show him a chapter in Daniel that we're gonna read as we go through this. And they show him where Greece conquers Persia in the Bible. And when the book of Daniel, this is a quote from Josephus, the historian, when the book of Daniel was shown to him, Alexander, in which he had declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, He believed himself to be the one indicated. So he read, that's me. He's the one conquered the Persian empire. So he spared Jerusalem as a result of that. So that's the Greek empire. Now we move to the fourth kingdom, verse 40. The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. This is the Iron Empire. The Roman Empire is the one that follows the Greeks. Sometimes the Iron Age is referred to as the Roman Iron Age. Rome connected to iron in that way. The civilizations of bronze deteriorated and overtaken by the Iron Age civilizations like Rome. Daniel 11 will give us more detail on this. This is the empire into which Jesus is born, into the Roman Empire. It's Rome that's ruling at that time, They start ruling from 63 BC is when Rome begins its empire. And it's in 70 AD that Jerusalem gets utterly destroyed where Jesus talked about one stone not left upon another. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he looks into the future. And he says to the Jews, oh, I've wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not if only you had known that your king was coming You recognize that I'm your king, but because you're rejecting me, your city's gonna be destroyed. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, one author said is the first example of globalization. So the Romans conquered lands and then they would make the people they conquered, not vassals, but citizens. They would offer citizenship. And this is one of the strengths of the Roman empire, what helped it to grow. Rome went from a small little settlement on the Tiber River and it became a global state that lasted more than, wait a second, Babylon, less than 100. What was next? Medo-Persian, more than 200. Greek, 350. Remember, the legs are a long part of our body. This represented by these legs of iron. Over a 1,000 years, the Roman Empire rules. Interesting how they went from this small settlement over a 1,000 years, covered three continents Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, 2.5 million square miles, and they ruled over at their height 70 million people. And again, represented by these two legs, which would represent in our historical understanding, what's the division of the Roman Empire? East and West. You've got the Western part of the Roman Empire that really ends up dissolving into what we now call Western Europe. And the Eastern leg of the Roman Empire, becomes the Byzantine Empire with a capital at Constantinople. The capital of the West is Rome. Capital of the East is Istanbul or Constantinople in Turkey. So this empire divided and so strong in some senses, but look at what verse 41 says. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, so you've got these iron legs of this crushing kingdom, but then it transitions into feet and toes. Doesn't say it's another kingdom. Doesn't say, and then after that, so it seems that there's only four kingdoms, but this one transitions into feet and toes. How many toes you've got? You've got 10 toes. So part of the way we interpret this is in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to learn about 10 horns that correspond to the 10 toes here. And you go fast forward to Revelation chapter 17. We'll also read about a beast with 10 horns there. So there's other things that come into play as we interpret what exactly is being talked about here. So Nebuchadnezzar, you saw the feet and toes, partly of clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Again, not just divided twice, but divided into much smaller, these 10 little toes. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. So we've got these feet and toes kind of highlighted here. And what in the world is that all about? And again, different people have different understandings or decisions about what is being talked about. In a sense, it does fit with Rome historically. We talked about the two legs as the Roman empire expanded, they wouldn't just collect taxes, but they would form an alliance with the people they conquered. Ultimately, Rome suffered economically, politically, and militarily, and morally. Read Romans chapter 1. There was moral collapse. The family in Rome collapsed. The family unit on which society is based collapsed. And these are some of the things that weakened, that made that empire fragile. They had a series of amateur politicians and lots of corruption. Hmm. Let's think on that one for a minute. Now, the interesting thing is, notice he says uh, in the dream that there's gonna be attempts. Look at verse 43. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. Seems to be talking about intermarrying among these different divisions and parts to try to get them to cement together. You know, in Europe, there was many attempts to try to intermarry this nation with that nation to try to create peace by getting our kids hitched together. And then that forms a unity with us. But the Bible says it doesn't work. Even though they tried, there's a disintegration. They just won't adhere, whether it's culturally or whether it's ideologically, just like iron and clay don't mix. So historically, there've been many attempts to reunify Europe. Napoleon tried and he failed. Hitler tried and he failed. Matter of fact, if Hitler had read the Bible, he would have known he was gonna fail because he could have read this and say, well, there's gonna be no successful attempt to reunify The toes, they're made of iron and clay and they just don't mix. Not gonna happen. So now we live in the times of European Union. So it seems that Jesus came into the Roman empire and that's where he lived and that's where he was crucified. And it's almost like there was this pause in God's historical timeline because we haven't seen this stone conquer the world. The gospel has gone out but I would say, as I look around, I don't see Jesus ruling the planet Earth, do you? So we recognize that this final destruction of the last dominating world empire is still future. So many believe that it's some kind of revived Roman empire that there's been this pause, but then that'll be the revive, and that will be the empire out of which comes who? The Antichrist. Now, the European Union, many have watched that and said, oh, see, Europe's trying to regather. And once they regather... The Antichrist is going to come. But there's lots of nations now in the European Union. It's way more than 10. But I read an interesting article just recently that was talking about, you know, the G7, the group of seven, seven world powers. Russia was one, but then they kicked Russia out. It was the G8, then they kicked Russia out. Now it's back to the G7. This year, you know who's hosting the summit? We are. Donald Trump is. And when you host it, you can actually invite other nations that aren't part of the G7. And Donald Trump has plans to invite some other nations, for instance, Australia. And it's interesting what's happening politically with Australia and China. Australia is taking refugees from Hong Kong, which is making China mad. The political scene right now is fascinating. So the article I read said, why just the G7? Why not a G10? That was this June. Now we look at coronavirus, And we look at it from our standpoint. We got to wear a mask and it's really inconvenient. Who knows how God is using this pandemic to solidify and cement and to work and to make and to maneuver world economy, world globalization to put things in place because things aren't falling apart. They're coming together and how God uses COVID and how God uses these different things. So it could be a G10. I mean, who knows? We're just speculating. Donald Trump has pulled us out of the World Health Organization, pulled us out of UNESCO. So lots of things are happening with China and Hong Kong and South Korea and Australia. So some of the suggestions for adding to the G7 would be Australia and India, who's also having issues with China right now. Some border skirmishes just left a lot of people dead, which has really brought tension between India and China. We live in a world climate like never before in human history. Never has the world been so connected. And couldn't you see a global entity, a global conglomerate of nations, of 10 nations, called the G10, out of which they would give power to one person to oversee the whole thing, to bring peace around the world. And that person, everybody's gonna buy into it. And that will be the Antichrist. You know, we worry about tracking systems. You know, we got cell phones. Nobody has any trouble tracking you with your cell phone. But notice, as we go on, notice that the kingdoms of the world devolve. They get from more valuable to less valuable. There's this going from top to bottom. And by the end, they're very fragile. The last will have some strength, but still very fragile. And isn't that true of humans? We have a little bit of strength, but we're also so fragile. Any human government in the big picture has always and will always fail. Look at verse 44. In the days of these kings the days of the ten toes, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is one of those things we say, it's, uh, it's already, but not yet. That's a fancy way to say the kingdom of God is already. I'm part of the kingdom of God. Are you part of the kingdom of God? Jesus is my Lord. He's my king. So the kingdom is present in us, in our hearts, but it's not yet on the planet earth. The kingdom is not yet seen in its fulfillment. So we have a semblance of it, but not its fulfillment. But in the days of the Antichrist, in the days of those 10 kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. The big picture, this statue outwardly, wow, impressive. Outwardly, splendid, awe-inspiring, And now our kingdoms look different. They look like rivers like Amazon and they look like big tech companies. Impressive, impressive what people are doing. Outwardly impressive, but ultimately doomed to fail. Why? Because people are involved and we will always botch up everything we get our hands on. That's why I love the stone that comes in, not touched by human hands. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out who the stone is. The stone the builders rejected had become the chief of the corner. Jesus, he comes in the likeness of human flesh. You try to control Jesus, you try to tell him what he can and can't do. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. No human being directed Jesus as to what kind of kingdom to have. He says, I only do what my father tells me. No human hands, his kingdom, no human hands. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces, consume all these kingdoms and stand forever. Why do we expect things to be different? Isn't that the interesting thing about our lives? We look at the world, we look at human government and somehow we expect what has never happened to happen in our lifetime. That's some kind of semblance of a successful human empire that will take care of everybody. You know, what everybody wants, they want the kingdom of God, but they wanna have it without God. I want the kingdom of God. I want peace and righteousness and justice and love. But we just want that without God. Sorry. There's only one way the kingdom of God comes, and that's by having the right king. Because the king will always determine the nature of the kingdom. I don't put my trust in human kingdoms. Ultimately, who is behind every human-centered kingdom? From Babylon of Genesis all the way forward, who's behind the agenda? of any human man-made kingdom and empire? Think about this. Remember when Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit and Satan comes to tempt him there? Hey, Jesus, why don't you go ahead and turn those stones into bread? I know you're hungry, you've been fasting. Why don't you just go ahead and turn those stones to bread? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Oh, okay, well, why don't you just throw yourself down off the top of the pinnacle of the temple and, and God will, will rescue you, ah, uh, ah. Uh, uh. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And do you remember the next temptation? I'll read it to you. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. It's as if Satan played a movie very similar to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. All the kingdoms of the world are shown to Jesus. And Satan says, all this I will give you. It's mine to give, Jesus. I'll give it to you without the cross. I'll give it to you without the suffering, without the cost. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Anybody can be bought, almost anybody. And Satan is offering. You want power? You want an empire? He doesn't tell you it won't last. He doesn't tell you it's gonna get blown away like chaff, not remembered. He'll give you the temporary in exchange for the eternal. He'll give you the impressive in exchange for the for the substantial. Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The heart of Babylon, we're gonna make a name for ourselves, the heart of all these leaders, Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar and Satan himself in Isaiah 14. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I want to ascend and be God-like. I wanna be my own little God. I want everybody else around to serve me. I wanna create something that lasts. Do you know, come on, church, For us in this room, what you do on planet Earth is going to be forgotten. And the people that are remembered, now their statues get torn down. So you got to decide what you're going to live for. I got a quote for you. Woodrow Wilson, I would rather fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. You might be the one that managed to secure yourself on that ship the most beautiful expensive suite on that boat called the titanic what good is it cuz the whole thing is going down you might be successful in the world's eyes you can be successful in the world's eyes and an utter failure before god jesus they wagged their fingers at him they said, oh if you're god get yourself down off that cross they mocked him they teased him to the world he was a failure to his family he was a lunatic His disciples left him, but to God, to his father, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve successfully in two kingdoms. You gotta pick one. And Jesus was all about the kingdom of heaven. Outside of the gospel of John, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus talked about his father's kingdom way more than he talked about love. If I had said to you, what Jesus talk about most? Most people say love. In John, yes. And it's not the Synoptic gospels, way more about the kingdom. Here's a quick list. From the time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew four. Matthew six, he taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. Matthew six, thirty three, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. At the last supper, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, I will not drink henceforth the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. See, we see the reality of human kingdoms and we see in these passages the comparison to God's kingdom. Did you notice what he said about this kingdom that God is gonna set up? In that day, God is gonna set up a kingdom. It's indestructible, won't be destroyed. It's stable, not left to another. It's superior, destroys all the others. Why? Because they're all in one fell swoop, because they're all connected to Satan. When one goes, they all go, and it's final. Verse 45 says, "Inasmuch as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the whole system, it broke everything. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this, and knowing is important. You need to know in the time we live in, the uncertainty, the difficulty, the violence, the disruption, the disorganization, the disarray of the times we live in, Daniel says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. When you hear from God, you know that what you've understood and what you've learned is certain and sure. Most of the things that I hear, for every article I read about this side, there's seven articles about that side. And I read an article about that side. As anybody else, sometimes I go, I don't know what to believe anymore. Who do you trust? You trust this news or that news, as if anyone is unbiased. So I just get frustrated and I go, thank God I have a Bible. Turn off the news for a little bit and read your Bible. Let your heart be enraptured by the splendid kingdom that will last forever. And being faithful, look, God says, Here's the thing I want. I've got a kingdom and I've given you some things to take care of for me till I come back. Just be faithful with that. Instead of shouting at the darkness, let's be the light. 46 and 47, the king's reaction. King Nebuchadnezzar did what everybody should do when they're confronted by the true and living God who knows the secrets of men's hearts, who knows their thoughts. He fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to Daniel the king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Nebuchadnezzar's shattered dream has led him to a whole new worship. All of his gods have left him nowhere. They couldn't even tell him what he was thinking. What gods are those? Empty. Now Nebuchadnezzar has found the true and living God. The reward for Daniel, verses 48 and 49 The king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. It's not why Daniel did it. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king. He sent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king.